obviously, thank you so much for doing this with us. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and how you heard about this? Uh, sure. So my study groups have all been listening to your podcast uh, and one of my friends contacted you just to say thank you and you guys essentially offered for one of us to be the next guinea pig for your Viva. <laughs> I both- well, I wouldn't say guinea pig, you know, because everyone who comes through us and does the Viva, we've only had one so far, will obviously be a swan or even maybe even a lion. So no no guinea pigs here. <laughs> what do you have against guinea pigs? <laughs> Nothing. Oh, well, no. <laughs> and, 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 you know, obviously this can be a bit confronting, but, you know, you, you know, this is pretty, we think it's pretty cool of you to be okay with, you know, being kind of quizzed, I guess, on, uh, on, on, on a podcast. Well, I guess that uh, better to have a practice run before the real day. And uh, what's more scary than a lot of other people, right? Absolutely, yeah. We were just saying how, how much this, I think, helps other people just to have a listen to how the Viva runs and just how the questions might sound. And, and often, you know, it is a pretty confronting experience in the exam, but, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be. It's like a discussion between, between colleagues about these pretty interesting interesting topics. And, and Susanna, look, I think we have to congratulate you because I think the, the, re- the results are out and you, you wouldn't be with us today unless you got an invite to the Viva. So congratulations and congratulations to everyone who's actually still listening um, because it means, you know, you've done so well, you've put in all the hard work and now it's, it's, um, it's time to get paid. It's time to, you know, <laughs> final four weeks to, to get this exam done. Hey, how, how's, like, how's the, like, tell us about the whole experience about learning this year and you know sort of the lead up in the last sort of couple of weeks as well how's that been for you Susanna? Uh, Well for me I took a little break I'm sure a lot of other people did after the written because I think we were all pretty exhausted and then getting back into it has been a bit difficult just the motivation but uh, I've had a lot of support where I'm working um, and a lot of people have been willing to give me vivas so I've just been trying to utilize those opportunities and get back into it essentially. Fantastic. And look, as I tell all my trainees, you know, this exam, it's more than just about testing your knowledge. You know, it's it's really testing your ability to communicate and to also collaborate, not just with your consultants, but also with your peers. And, you know, you having the skills to do that really, you know, puts you on, a, on the front foot to success, not only for this exam, but also for the future as well. So, you know, really good work, Susanna, and especially, you know, having the confidence as well to reach out to us. Um, and that just shows the other C that I, that I talk about. And this is something that Lars actually, that I actually learned from La, you know, the three C's to um, how to be a successful person in life, you know, the, be a good communicator, be a good collaborator and be creative. And this is just that aspect of being creative and coming onto this podcast and hey, having a chat with us. Thank you very much <laughs> for having me. No worries. Shall we get started? Okay. Yeah, all right. So let's get started. So look, the way we're going to run is we're going to do two vivas. So um, each viva is going to be 20 minutes long, 20 minutes long with four stems. So Lahiru is going to ask you two stems first, each of five minutes. And then after that, I'll ask you two stems and then we'll give you some feedback. And then we'll do the second viva. All right. Sounds good. Thank all right. you. You're all ready? Yes. Let's start. Susanna, what accounts for the difference in oxygen partial pressure in dry air versus the oxygen partial pressure in the alveolus? So the oxygen partial pressure in dry air is 160 millimetres of mercury, as described by the alveolar gas equation. This is reduced to 100 millimetres of mercury in the alveoli. 
secondary initially humidification, secondary to the saturated vapor pressure of water, and finally secondary to the uptake of oxygen by the pulmonary capillary blood, which reduces this to 100 millimetres of mercury. Yeah, fantastic. What is the alveolar gas equation, just to spell it out? The alveolar gas equation, the partial pressure in the alveolar of oxygen is 0.21 multiplied by the atmospheric pressure minus the partial pressure of saturated vapour pressure, which is 47, uh, minus the alveolar CO2 divided by the respiratory quotient. Excellent. And that partial pressure of, um, uh, I guess, humidified humidified water, is that always 47? It depends on the temperature. So at 37 degrees, it's 47 millimetres of mercury. Yeah, excellent. Um, Are there any other components to the alveolar gas equation? I believe there's a correction factor, mm-hmm. approximately two millimetres of mercury. Excellent. Um, yes. Um, when does that become larger than two millimetres of mercury? Uh, so it depends on, I believe, the respiratory quotient and which, which metabolic substrates are used, um, but I'm not 100% sure. Sorry. No, that's fine. Now, what is the respiratory quotient? So the respiratory quotient is essentially the CO2 produced a ratio of the CO2 production to the oxygen consumed. Um, the major determinant of this is the metabolic substrates which are used. Mm-hmm. So uh, carbohydrates have a respiratory quotient of 1, protein of 0.9, and fat of 0.7. And in the average Western diet, it's approximately 0.8. Excellent. Now, what is the AA gradient? So the AA gradient is the numerical difference between the ideal alveolar gas um, partial pressure oxygen to the arterial partial pressure of oxygen. Excellent. Now, what are the causes of an increased AA gradient? Um, so the common causes are shunt, VQ mismatching, and a diffusion abnormality. Mm-hmm. What are examples of these? Uh, so shunt would be, for example, a congenital heart disease. Mm-hmm. A VQ mismatch can occur in adolescents during general anesthesia, for example. Uh, and a diffusion abnormality may occur in something like pulmonary edema or pulmonary fibrosis, um, but that's less of a common cause. What other things would cause VQ mismatch? Uh, other things that cause VQ mismatch include a pulmonary, em- pulmonary embolism, pulmonary edema, which I think I've already said. Mm-hmm. Now, what's Sorry, it? I can't. No, that's fine. And what, are, what, what would you say the difference between... You mentioned atelectasis as a cause of VQ mismatch. What's the difference then between VQ mismatch versus shunt? So shunt is defined as when the blood goes from the right side of the heart to the left side of the heart without partaking in gas exchange, whereas a VQ mismatch, uh, essentially there is some gas exchange which occurs, but the ratio is between zero to one, whereas a shunt always has a VQ ratio of zero. Yeah, excellent. Um, so what are all uh, other causes of shunt? Um, other causes of shunt include, so you've got your anatomical causes of shunt, which are true shunt. These include the bronchial arteries and the Sabesian veins that are approximately less than 1% of the cardiac output. And your pathological causes of shunt, which I've already discussed, such as the congenital heart disease. Um, this can also occur, for example, if you have a massive pneumothorax lung collapse. Excellent. Like that. Uh, what are the causes of hypoxemia, but with a normal AA gradient? Uh, these would include things such as a reduced FiO2, um, a reduced pulmonary atmospheric pressure, such as breathing at altitude, mm-hmm. and 
hyperventilation Excellent. that occurs. Do you have, do you have any examples of what the uh, FiO2 or the pressure, a partial pressure of oxygen in the atmosphere would be dropped to at different altitudes? Uh, for example, I believe I'd have to do the math. No, no that, that, that's all right. No, that's fine. Let's move on to the next question. Thank you. Okay. Good. Um, now, what are the different types of hypersensitivity reactions that you know of? So there are four classic hypersensitivity reactions, type 1 to 4. So type 1 is an IgE-mediated um, is IgE mediated secondary to antigens binding to mast cells or basophils, which cause massive degranulation. And a type 1 hypersensitivity is anaphylaxis. Type 2 is also antibody-mediated, but it's a cytotoxic reaction secondary to IgG or IgM, um, and a common cause of this is transfusion reaction. Mm-hmm. The type 3 is an immune complex-mediated reaction where an antigen and antibody complex uh, gets into tissue and this leads to immune response or complement activation. Um, this occurs in things such as serum sickness. And type 4 is a cell-mediated hypersensitivity. It's usually delayed and it's usually T-cell-mediated. And an example of this is um, what happens with tuberculosis. Excellent. So let's let's talk about maybe the cellular mechanism of anaphylaxis. What 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 is the cellular mechanism in anaphylaxis? Anaphylaxis occurs in two phases. There's an initial priming phase where there's antigen sensitization. Uh, so in this phase, the antigen binds to the major histocompatibility complex on the beta lymphocytes, and then the, uh, with the help of the T helper cells, the beta lymphocytes produce antigens specific to the IgE. These IgEs then go to bind uh, and coat mast cells and the basophils, the mast cells in the tissue and basophils in the blood. Uh, then there needs to be a re-exposure event for the antigen to bind to the IgE on the subsequent cells and this causes a mass all or nothing degranulation of the mast cells. Mm-hmm. You get a re- graded release of the different mediators. So you get an immediate release of what's stored in the mast cells, the histamine, tryptate, heparin, serotonin. Mm-hmm. And then after 30 minutes, you get increased release of, or you get release of leukotrains mm-hmm. and prostaglandins. Excellent. Uh, now, how does it cause hypotension? So the hypertension is secondary to the mediators binding to different receptors. The major mediator to cause uh, hypotension is histamine. It binds to H1 and H2 receptors, which are different kinds of G-protein-coupled receptors. And the H1 receptor particularly causes vasodilation, secondary to an increased production of nitric oxide synthesis, and it also causes tachycardia. Um, The other mediators, such as tryptase and serotonin, also cause direct vasodilation. Um, Tryptase activates the complement cascade, which causes further vascular permeability and vasodilation. And um, with your late release of mediators, the leukotrienes and prostaglandins both cause vasodilation through interaction with their given G-protein-coupled receptors. Mm -hmm. Now, what would you do to treat anaphylaxis, just basically? Uh, Anaphylaxis is a life-threatening emergency, so I would call for additional help than take an ABC approach. But my um, priority would be to give adrenaline Great. and with also the, give... With adrenaline, why is adrenaline used in anaphylaxis? Uh, so it's used for multiple reasons, but firstly, it supports circulation. Uh, it's a natural catecholamine that causes an increased systemic vascular resistance and contractility uh, rapidly. And secondary, 
secondarily, it stabilizes the muscles and basophils, so it stops ongoing degranulation by these cells. Is there any other effects that it has that's beneficial in, in anaphylaxis? So the alpha-1 effects that it has are the vasoconstriction, um, systemic vascular resistance and increased coronary and cerebral perfusion. The beta-1 effects it has are to increase the heart rate and contractility and the beta-2 effects are the dilation, um, which treats the major bronchospasm you normally get with anaphylaxis um, and the reduction of mast cell and basophil mediator relief. Excellent. What doses would you give? So it depends on which grade of anaphylaxis you have and there's action cards available through ASCA that you can look at. Mm. But if there's cardiovascular collapse, the treatment dose is one milligram intravenously as per the ALS2 of one in 1,000 adrenaline. Um, grade 2 anaphylaxis, which is multi-organ manifestations, you give that at 20 microgram boluses and repeat every two to three minutes. And then grade 3 anaphylaxis, it's a life-threatening multi-organ um, involvement, you start at 100 to 200 micrograms of, bol- um, micrograms of adrenaline. After three boluses... That's very good. Should- we'll end that part of the Viva there. And over to you, Stan. All right. Um, so what are the indications of clonidine in anaesthetic practice? So clonidine can be given throughout the anaesthetic. Um, you can be given it as a pre-medication, an anxiolytic, uh, an analgesic and it's opioid sparing. Uh, it's max sparing as well and it can be used to treat hypertension. Post-operatively, you can use it as a management method for post-operative shivering. Great. And what's its mechanism of action? So clonidine is an alpha-2 adrenoceptor agonist. It's a partial agonist. It has an affinity, the alpha-2 to alpha-1 ratio of 220 to 1 and acts presynaptically to inhibit the release of noradrenaline and um, decrease sympathetic output. Now, if I was to give a bolus of intravenous clonidine, what would you expect to happen to the blood pressure? So because of the small affinity for alpha-1 receptors, you get an initial transient hypertension before it diffuses and binds to alpha-2 receptors. So you get the initial hypertensive episode before you get a hypotension. And with the hypotension, how does the clonidine cause that? It binds to the alpha-2 receptor, which is presynaptic. It's a GIG protein-coupled receptor. So this results in a reduction in CAMP and phosphokinase production, which results in a... which results in reduction in noradrenaline release um, and a reduction in sympathetic output. The alpha-2 receptors it mainly works on for reduction in blood pressure are in the prefrontal cortex and the locus ceruleus of the brain, and this results in a reduction in sympathetic nervous system output. Um, Additionally, clonidine has a high affinity for this, uh, the imidazolene, imidazolene receptor, um, which has been found to cause hypotension and bradycardia as well. And with its affinity for the imidazolene receptor, do you know why it has affinity for that receptor? I'm not 100% sure, no. Um, structurally, do you know what group clonidine belongs to? Mm. That's okay. Now, um, with clonidine, does it have any peripheral effects? Just, so you described to me the central effect. How about the peripheral effect for, for well, blood pressure? It, for blood pressure. Well, it can cause vasoconstriction. Yep. 
And tell me about the pharmacokinetics of clonidine. So, so pharmacokinetically, it has almost 100% oral bioavailability. Uh, it's mildly lipophilic with a protein binding between 20 to 50%. Uh, it's metabolized in the liver 50% to inactive metabolites. Uh, and it's excreted in the urine 60% and feces 20%. It's got a half-life of 9 to 12 hours. Okay. And so what does that mean with regards to dosing? So with... I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not sure I understand the question. That's all right. So would you give it as a intravenous effusion? Would you give it twice a day, once a day, four times a day? I believe it can be given up to four times a day. Um, but the 9 to 12 hours would suggest that you should probably give it three to two to three times a day. It isn't given as an infusion typically, um, I believe, because it accumulates in the peripheral tissue. Okay. And then with the other um, alpha-2 agonist dexmedetomidine, what are the differences between that and clonidine? So this can be divided into pharmacocytic, pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic differences. Starting pharmaceutically, uh, dexmedetonidine is only available intravenously, I believe, and is given as an infusion, whereas clonidine is available in a various different ways, such as orally, intranasally, and intravenously. Um, in comparison to clonidine pharmacokinetically, dexmedetonidine has variable and unpredictable oral bioavailability, that's why we give it intravenously, but it's highly lipophilic. Uh, and has very high protein binding and high volume of distribution. It's T half-life alpha is six minutes, uh, and it has a context-sensitive half-time of 60 minutes after two hours, so it does have a tendency to accumulate in infusions. And, and why is it, that? And this is because of its high volume of distribution uh, and its low clearance, I believe. And can you run dexmedetomidine for um, a, a prolonged period of time? You can and you do, especially in intensive care, uh, but it just has it just lasts for a long time. What are the issues of running it more than twenty four hours? I believe that you can get tolerance. Okay. Um, now, what are the structural changes in the heart associated with aging? The structural changes in the heart associated with aging uh, include you get fibrous infiltration of the conducting tissue and the myocardium. This results in an increased risk of arrhythmias and a reduced compliance to the left ventricle. Uh, you get left ventricular hypertrophy, secondary to uh, increased aortic impedance and left ventricle wall tension. But you get a reduction in the number of your myocytes. So your cardiac mass actually increases by 30%, but you get a reduced number. And while you have the same density of your beta adrenoceptors, you get a reduced sensitivity to catecholamines. And what are the structural changes in blood vessels associated with ageing? So as you age, you get increased calcification and a reduced elastin uh, and a thickened tunica media. So, and additionally, endothelial dysfunction with a reduced nitric oxide synthesis. Um, so this results in a increased load, reduced ability for the capacitance vessels to store blood. And how do these structural changes affect the hemodynamics? So essentially, you get... An increase in, so a decrease in left ventricular compliance, an increase in afterload, um, and a reduction in preload. 
So your pulse pressure becomes narrower and your ability to increase your cardiac output in strenuous exercise and in a stressful situation is reduced significantly in comparison to, say, a 20-year-old. Um, additionally, maximal heart rate is reduced by about 25%. And what are the autonomic changes associated with ageing? So, like I said before, you get a reduction in the sensitivity of your adrenal receptors uh, to catecholamines, which means you get a blunted baroreceptor response. This is due to changes in the G-protein coupling um, of your beta adrenal receptors. So, you get a reduction in your ability to rapidly compensate the changes in your mean arterial pressure through changes in your cardiac output. Um, this will increase the risk of things like orthostatic hypotension, in the elderly, but it also increases the risk of hypotension when you give vasodilatory drugs because it's less able to compensate. So are there less or more circulating catecholamines? I'm sorry, could you, uh, so, you just cut so with, from... Oh, sorry. So with circulating uh, catecholamines, are there more or less of them? I, I thought there was the same amount, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, now, when performing of Elsalva in an elderly patient... How are the results different to that of a younger patient? So my understanding would be that the major changes would be in phase two and phase four, secondary to the reduction in your autonomic response to your Valsalva. So you'd normally get, so you still get an increase, initial increase in mean arterial pressure with phase one, followed by a drop in mean arterial pressure, but you don't the reflex tachycardia in phase two that would mitigate this drop in mean arterial pressure. So your MAP would continue to decrease. And then in phase three, when you release your Valsalva, uh, you get an initial, you still get your decrease in MAP, followed by an increased MAP as you get your filling phase of your um, pulmonary vessels, but you don't get as much of a reflex bradycardia and you don't get the overshoot of mean arterial pressure. And... Do you know what that is from? I believe it's from the blunted baroreceptor response, secondary to the reduced. And um, yep. And what other states would you also see that? You'd see that in something like um, diabetic autonomic abnormalities yep. um, and other autonomic Okay. And what would you see if the patient had congestive cardiac failure? With the so, with oh, sorry. Uh, so with congestive cardiac failure, you usually see the square response with the Valsalva. So because you have an increased volume of blood in your pulmonary vasculature, when you increase your intrathoracic pressure, you get a prolonged increase in your venous return um, and your preload to the left ventricle. So you get an increased mass which is sustained until, you re until phase four, essentially due to the volume of blood that you have. Excellent. Susanna, how good was that? I think... <laughs> I think well, well done. Yeah, yeah. 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 That was wonderful. You did really thought, well. Uh, there were a few awkward pauses there when I was like, I just don't know the answer to that. <laughs> it really didn't feel awkward to us at all. Those pauses were, we thought were thoughtful. <laughs> and I think that's quite a skill. And, you know, you're always going to have those pauses, especially when you get quite difficult questions. And it is a skill to pause, but to be able to also answer it and continue the conversation as well. And also being able to answer questions where you're not sure of. So I think that was very, very well done. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that, that was great. <laughs> um, La, did you have any feedback with 
uh, your stems? Yeah, so just to, just to go through them, just to rehash a little bit. I like the fact that you had some basic numbers. Like this is not a maths exam, but you had the numbers for partial pressure oxygen in the alveoles and at barometric. Um, you knew the equation really well. You knew the correction factor. Um, a lot of people I've examined don't always know that. And you basically knew that it was dependent on R. I think it was one, one takeaway R over R. And uh, it can increase from 2 to 10 with an FI of 100%. Um, but that was really good, I think. And you, you spoke at this pace, which was clear. And, you know, the stuff that you were saying was succinct. So you managed to move through everything very quickly. So, you know, we've got a few stems here. And I was making up questions to fill in the time, a lot, a lot of it. So that, that that was good. So I was just kind of adding on to whatever I whatever depth that I knew to ask you questions to, you know, get you further through these stems, which, which you easily got through. Uh, you had a good definition for respiratory quotient. So a lot of this exam is just having sharp definitions. So I was really happy with that. Um, and then, you know, you had very succinct causes of uh, AA gradient and, uh, you know, the n- normal AA gradient cause of hypoxemia as, as well, uh, which which was really great. So it just showed a lot of organization in the way you answered things, um, you know, having, uh, you know, understanding diffusion, VQ mismatch and what that actually is. Uh, and then understanding that's diff- that difference between shunt was, was really good. Uh, and then for the hypersensitivity, hypersensitivity reactions, Man, I remember going through these in my first part and uh, yeah, it's been a long, you know, as, as anesthetists, we pretty much only ever think about type one hypersensitivity. That's the only thing that really comes up in our lives and uh, all those other hypersensitivity reactions. Uh, I, was, I was really impressed that you were again succinct in having a, you know, a, a solid definition for each of those. Uh, good. And yeah, again, all of your other answers that were, yeah, absolutely perfect. So that was, that was a really, really strong viva. Yeah. And so for my stems, you answered them very well, like excellent. And I think it's quite a skill when you ha- when you get a question to be able to answer it, as Lahiri said, succinctly. So you certainly don't want to take the whole of five minutes answering one question. You want to answer it in within 30 seconds. And as I tell my trainees, you want to have the confidence in your knowledge to be able to engage the examiner. So what I often see is that if someone was lacking the confidence or the knowledge, they would just keep on talking about a topic. Whereas if you've got the confidence with your knowledge, you're able to stop and actually allow the examiner to come in and ask you and actually try to um, explore more of what you know. So I thought that was really well done. So with clonidine, you know, very strong. Um, with the last question with regards to dexmanotomy. So the reason why we don't run it after 24 hours, you said tolerance, but it's, um, it's actually tachyphylaxis. And it's good that, um, you know, just go back and have, have a look at the difference between tachyphylaxis and tolerance. But I certainly know, um, you know, what you meant. All right. Um, with regards to the aging one, that was a very difficult uh, stem, but you did so well in that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, on, the only thing that I want to clarify with you is that you said diastolic pressure increases and... Uh, pulse pressure narrows so that's correct if diastolic um, pressure actually increases but actually diastolic pressure decreases uh, with aging all right so the reason for that is that because of your stiff arteries you get rapid runoff and so you get a decrease in diastolic pressure and, and your pulse pressure and your pulse pressure actually increases okay thank you that's all right but otherwise very strong, like excellent. Yeah. <laughs> did you did you have any like feedback or or thoughts or questions on that? No, that was good. You guys answered the questions that I had. <laughs> so, oh, actually, I do have a question. It's just um, so the alveolar gas equation. 
and the step down from 149 to 100, mm-hmm. is that split due to uptake of oxygen by the pulmonary capillary blood? Because I see a lot of mathematical equations surrounding that about um, oxygen consumption, and I just wanted to make sure I was fully covering that. Actually, I'll let Stan answer this. We had a big discussion about this recently. Mm. Yeah. So, yes, it is to do with the oxygen uptake as well as the CO2 being produced from that uptake of oxygen, okay? So remember that the, the formula does include your PaCO2 divided by R. And what the confusing thing that a lot of candidates mistake it for is that they think that a rising uh, CO2 is actually the cause of lower partial pressure of oxygen. But remember that the, C- the CO2 is actually a function of both your consumption as well as your ventilation. So the point where the CO2 rises and your alveolar uh, partial pressure of oxygen decreases is because your ventilation drops, okay? But it's also a function of what your oxygen consumption is. So does, does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. Yeah. So, so just be careful. I mean, what, one, of, one of the questions that I like to explore with candidates is you know, when I talk about what actually causes your, um, your alveolar oxygen to drop, you know, a lot of candidates would, would talk about how there's an increase in CO2. But then when you talk about, you know, a reduction in your uh, alveolar O2 or, or the cause of hypoxemia, where, where, you know, and you listed those five, co- those five causes perfectly, you know, low FiO2, VQ mismatch, shunt, alveolar dead space, uh, diffusion impairment you listed all those correctly, like where does a rise in CO2 fit into those five def- definitions of hypoxemia? Do you know where? Is it from, is it hypoventilation? Correct. You didn't say hypo- Correct. Is it hypoventilation? Yeah, it's hypoventilation. And when I talk about uh, dead space, so where does dead space fit into those, to those five causes of hypoxemia? Do you know? Mm, is it from, it's not from VQ yeah, so look, a lot of people are going to say VQ mismatch, but it actually fits into hypoventilation. Because if I was to ask you, what's your definition of alveolar dead space, what would you say? Uh, I would say it's the fraction of the tidal volume which does not, uh, which does not partake in gas exchange. Perfect. Well, Correct. Yeah. And if I was to say to you, if you increase your alveolar dead space, what happens to your tidal volume that, part- that participates in gas exchange? Does it... Uh, it's re- it's reduced, exactly. In other words, you're going to hyperventilate, all right? And when we talk about hyperventilation, it's actually alveolar hyperventilation. So it's not just minute ventilation, it's alveolar hyperventilation. So it's respiratory multiplied by your tidal volume minus your physiological dead space. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. Thank you. Well done. All right. So um, we're probably going to end this episode there, uh, but we'll do this uh, for another episode as well. So and thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions, please email us at lahiraandstan at gmail.com. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time. Yeah.